Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Eamon Keane on the topic, The Legacy of Blessed John Paul II. This July 2010 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Eamon Keane is the Head of Social Science at Redfield College. Well, thank you very much, Arlette, and long may you live, and long may Lumen Verum apologetics live. And it's great to be here again, and this is a bit of a daunting task, because there's no need for me to tell you that Pope John Paul II has left such a legacy to the Church, such a legacy to humanity, that it'll take centuries even to begin to open up the wrapping on it. So, but anyhow... Um, I came across, this was sent out to me a few years ago on the second anniversary of Pope John Paul II's death. I think it brings out two things great, the faith, the deep faith of Pope John Paul II, his great love for his friend. And as Jesus told us, I no longer call you servants but friends. And his great friendship with Jesus, his great faith in God, and he exuded that, and he passed that on to others, and because he was so close to God, of course, he was so close to others as well. Um, and the great love he had for people, um, and so on. So, I'll start up here, the legacy of Pope John Paul II, and there's one of the images, an image of him in prayer. No matter what situation, my impression of many how was, no matter what situation you found him in, he always had a sense of God. He was always in touch with God. He never, he never lost sight of the being of the fact that his whole life and everything he was and he was doing was all dependent on God's providence and on God's love and that God would sustain him. And of course, putting it in context, here we have, um, we are, he, he was the Pope, the successor of St. Peter. And here I have Jesus, the Good Shepherd. And the Good Shepherd, of course, in the Old Testament, Yahweh was the Shepherd of Israel, and who shepherded and fed his own flock. He led them to rich pastures. He led them out of dangers. He led them into liberation, into freedom with the Promised Land, etc. But all of that was a prefigurement of when God himself would take on our human nature in the Incarnation, in the person of Jesus, and truly and be our, um, our Good Shepherd and lead us, into his own, to dwell in his very, very own life, as we'll see later. And of course, in setting up his church, he set it up um, as a hierarchically organized structure. I know that I'm saying that now, that'll be heresy in some quarters today, but nevertheless, that's our faith. And he, at the head of the apostles, he placed Peter, and Peter was to be the, was to be the source and the point of reference for the unity of the apostles, the unity of his church, and he intended that to, uh, to exist right throughout history until the end of time, law in which you all is, even to the end of the world. And of course, all the popes we have then take their, are, are successors of St. Peter in, in that position as vicar of Christ, head of the church, and successor of Peter, the first bishop of Rome, and as Peter, as bishop of Rome, and the Pope whom I have recalled in my lifetime, yes, these are the Pope who have been on the throne of Peter during my lifetime from five to twelve. I remember when he died as Alpine's football soccer up under the back streets. It was around 1959, I think, 58. I, I was born in 1951, so I was around 8 or 9. And I remember, I think, my mother or someone, someone came up and said, Pope um, Pius XII has died. Then I remember the election of Pope John, um, John XXIII, blessed Pope John XXIII. There was great excitement about that. And then the opening of the council. I remember Pope, Pope Paul VI um, very well, but um, I don't remember any particular thing standing out. Pope John Paul I, I remember he was, when he was elected Pope, I was in New Zealand at the time, and 
the great surprise when he um, died so quickly. And then I remember, you know, the great excitement when Pope John Paul II himself was um, elected Pope, and there we have his successor, Pope Benedict XVI. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in, he in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. The particular power that's given to St. Peter independently of the power given to the apostles as a body. Consequently, we see in the teaching of the Second Vatican Council that even though it emphasized collegiality that the Pope and the bishops in communion with them preside over and rule the church, nevertheless, it's the bishops who must teach in communion with the Pope. It is the College of Bishops who act in communion with the Pope. But the Pope, because he is the Vicar of Christ, which is an office he holds in his person, has supreme authority over the Church that he can exercise at any time, and he doesn't need to refer to anyone else, be it the College of Bishops or, any, uh, or anyone else. But nevertheless, that is not to say that collegiality, the Pope and the Bishops, is the way in which Jesus established the Church to be run, but he gave this particular power to Peter and consequently to his successors in the church. Um, of course, Pope John Paul II was very much a pope of the Second Vatican Council. He, he influenced the Second Vatican Council. He influenced some of his documents. And his experience in Poland, in Eastern Europe, and the struggle, the problems to have to deal with a, a gut with a political system that was very, very hostile, not only to Catholicism, but hostile to any kind of belief in God. And that experience became were very, very important, and you can see the influence on it in the forging of some of the documents. And he was particularly influential on several documents. One of them is called the Constitution of the Church in the Modern World. He had a big influence over the document, the, um, the, um, the decree on um, religious freedom. He had a lot of influence on um, the one on the laity as well, and so on. And you can see he was bringing his experience in Eastern Europe and trying to, to bring the gospel, to bring the faith into dialogue, into discussion with the modern world with all its different types of philosophies. And as you see, that became very, very much his program as Pope, and of course, he did it always in fidelity to the teaching of the Council. He truly was a Pope of the Council to the extent that he influenced the formation of the Council documents, and then he tried to give expression to the directives, both the spirit and the letter of the Council in his pontificate. Now, of course, as Pope John Paul, blessed Pope John the Twenty-Third said at the opening of the council and the sacred deposit of the faith this doctrine and dogma is one thing how is it explained and articulated in new situations is another thing the new articulation of course will never contradict the received doctrine but nevertheless it was always a constant search for how to express it in ways that will be easier to understand and accept and embrace as by throughout the evolution of cultures and so on. And Pope John Paul II was very, very much a master at that. But nevertheless, he was anchored in the whole tradition of the Church. He was anchored in the doctrine of the Church. And this raises a very important issue, because as many people here might be aware of, Pope Benedict XVI gave a very, very important address to... Um, I think it's around three or four, uh, four years ago now, and he spoke about a hermeneutic of continuity and a hermeneutic of rupture. The hermeneutic of continuity means, hermeneutic means the interpretation of, the correct interpretation of the Council, which means you interpret the Council's teachings in continuity with the doctrine of the Church that has been transmitted to us. The hermeneutic of rupture or discontinuity is, means 
you, you, you develop an interpretation of the Council's teaching which contradicts the received and definitive teaching of the Church. And one of the, the struggles that have been going on in the Church for the last 40 years is basically, if you like, a struggle between that hermeneutic of continuity and that hermeneutic of rupture. And two of the great, um, apart from his role, well, um, in his role of Pope, you would say that one of his great contributions to the Church was that he kept the Church steady during that period of intellectual and spiritual and moral turmoil that went on in the world from the 1960s right up to the present time. And he was able to keep the Church, honestly, it doesn't mean there wasn't problems, there was great problems, there was losses, there was gains, etc. But nevertheless, for those who wanted to find out what it was that the Church thought, Pope John Paul II was your point man. He was a faithful point of reference. And of course, one of the things the Second Vatican Council said was that the whole of theology has to be anchored in the foundations of the faith and at the root of that foundation, the centre of it, is the Holy Trinity. And it spoke of a hierarchy of truths. And when it spoke of a hierarchy of truths, it didn't mean that some truths, because they're less important, you can discard them. It didn't mean that at all. It just means that, first of all, there are central truths, and then other truths of the um, radiate out from that. But to understand them properly, you must understand them all in relation to the centre. And at the centre of our faith, of course, is the Holy Trinity. And the Council called for that. The Council itself related so much of its understanding for you. The, the chapter of the document on the church, Lumen Gentium, the chapter, the document on the liturgy, so many of the documents, so much of the theology, all oh, the council takes its starting point and goes back or, or, or enters it in the central revelation of Christianity, which is the revelation of the Blessed Trinity. <coughs> and associated with that, the revelation of the Blessed Trinity is the revelation through the Son to the Incarnation, where the second person of the Blessed Trinity took on our human nature and became man. Now, the most frequently quoted, I read one time, I presume it's, I probably read this around 15 years ago, and it says that the most frequently quoted passage from Vatican II of Pope John Paul II was that Christ reveals not only the mystery of the Father and his love, but also he reveals man to man himself. And why I'm particularly fond of this particular icon or artistic representation of the Holy Trinity, because in it we have the risen Christ. And as the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, um, Jesus in his resurrection introduced our humanity into the life of the Holy Trinity in its combat with those who want to say that women can be praised, one of the arguments in one of the earlier documents in 1976 called Interinciliores, it says, Christ was and remains a man. He's a human being, and that's what I like about that. It shows you the reality, number one, of the incarnation, number two, the reality of the incarnation, of the resurrection, number three, the reality that we're introduced in our humanity to participate with Christ in the life of the Holy Trinity. And Pope John Paul II anchored so much of his theology, for example, in the Holy Trinity. For example, his theology of the body. He's, he, 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 presents it. he presents the meaning of marital love as a reflection, an image of the primordial community of love, which is the Holy Trinity. The next thing he did was, of course, he will, he, Jesus fully reveals God to man and man to man himself. So much of his teaching was anchored in the person of Christ. Everywhere he went, he said, turn to Christ. In other words, he did nothing that St. Peter didn't do. St. Peter, on that first ser sermon on Pentecost, he got up and he told everybody to turn to Christ. Only in Christ is no other name, said St. Peter, under heaven and on earth by which man can be saved other than Jesus Christ, and that's what Pope Benedict did. He was a true apostle. He showed himself as a true successor of St. Peter in that, and he showed himself as a faithful disciple of the Lord in that all he could preach was Christ crucified and his resurrection. And of course, everything else he preached 
was an outer, was an outer working of the implications of that central reality. Whether he was teaching on social justice, or whether he was teaching on marriage, or on ethics, or on sacraments, or on the liturgy, whatever it was, it was all the outer working, it was drawing out the implications of that central revelation of Christianity. And in that, he showed himself to be so faithful to the council. You can see this, you know, this is not being taped, but some of the ideas that are going through my head, some of the rubbish we get going around the place that Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict were faithful to the teaching of the council, that they tried to reverse the council, all of that nonsense. It doesn't come up as much nowadays, does it? It's so sad, you know, that the great tradition of education and, you know, thinking and our contribution to philosophy and the evolution of a humane society of the Catholic Church, that kind of rubbish can be, you know, Accepted as you know respectable in our in many I suppose of our educational institutions. No, anyhow, and here are some pictures. And Pope John Paul II, and he, what was it? Was it 25 years he was pope? Was there 26 or more? Something like that, anyhow. 1978, 2005, 27 years. Sure, 27. Yeah, 27. Sure. In that, he preached the whole of the gospel. Not just part of it. The incarnation, the place of our lady in the church. I'll have more to say that later on. And in his teaching, uh, he covered the whole of the gospel, the whole of Christ's life. He, he emphasized and drew his teaching from both the words of Jesus, who said the Sermon on the Mount, the actions of Jesus in his miracles, the, the divine nature of Jesus as well as the human, sorry, that Jesus was a divine person with a divine nature and a human nature. He didn't water down any part of the mystery. Uh, of course, so much of his preaching was on the Paschal mystery. Here Jesus, and before Pilate, scourging, Carrying the cross, the crucifixion, some of my images from my Gibbons movie there, and then of course the resurrection. And everywhere he went, when he spoke to people, he never, never lost the opportunity to speak to them convincingly that Jesus was his best friend, that Jesus was his savior, that Jesus was the answer to all their searching. Of course, we say the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. The whole of the Christian life is focused on the Eucharist. It draws its life from the Eucharist. It draws its meaning from the Eucharist. And I don't think anyone could have borne better witness to that reality than Pope John himself, Pope John Paul II himself. He left us an example of love and devotion and reverence for the Eucharist. Not only did he leave us the example of his own great love, the hours and hours he spent in adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, the reverent way in which he would say the Mass himself, the way that, but also the beautiful teachings and documents he wrote about the Eucharist. It was very, very fitting, I think, that the very, he wrote 14 encyclicals. And it's very fitting, I think, that the last encyclical he wrote should have been on the Blessed Eucharist. I think it was, um, oh, I forget which year, but it was the last encyclical he wrote, anyway, 2003, I think it was. And it was Eucharistia de Clavia, yeah. Um, and in it, he said one of the things he was setting out to do in that encyclical on the Eucharist. And I'll tell you what, I couldn't, if I was to recommend anything for you to, Go away from here tonight and read. I say, go and read. Go away and read that document. If you if you have access to the internet, you can download it on the internet. But the best way probably to read it is to buy it in a booklet form for around ten dollars, where many shops are on sale. But it is a beautiful document. And in one place in it, in the early part, he says something to the effect: he's writing this in six ago in response 
to the dark winds of error, a stuff that has crept in to the church's life, to the crept into the church in regard to the Blessed Eucharist. And in that encyclical, he reaffirms all the established doctrine, including, of course, the church's teaching on transubstantiation, that at the consecration in the Mass, through the words and actions of the priest, the bread and wine is changed, actually changed. It's a substantial change. It's changed into the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Now, I could be wrong about this. He reaffirmed the, the teaching on transubstantiation once. But from my reading of the encyclical, this was very important to me because I spent a lot of years laboring over this. The doctrine that he affirmed most, he affirmed most frequently in that document was that the confection of the Eucharist depends on an ordained priest who has received the power to do so through the sacrament of holy orders, which is transmitted through apostolic succession going back to the very beginning in the upper room when Jesus first conferred the priesthood on the apostles. And I would say from there are various ways in which the, doc, the, the Eucharist has been attacked over the last 20 years of faith in the Eucharist. One is the outright, would say, the cultivation of an, a liturgical atmosphere that doesn't, that doesn't give rise to reverence in and about the precincts of the Eucharist. And, you know, the isolation of the Blessed Sacrament into some obscure place in the church and so on. But one other way in which our doctrine, our belief in the Eucharist has been undermined is through an undermining of the origin and the meaning of the ordained priesthood. And of course, in his teaching, Pope John Paul II goes right back to the upper room where the institution of the Eucharist, it was instituted and the same moment almost as we had the institution of the ministerial priesthood as well. Now, anyhow, moving on from that, in all of this, the first thing I wanted to say there, that Redeemer of man there, in the first encyclical he wrote, hath become Pope of Jesus, the Redeemer of man. And the second encyclical he wrote, if my memory served me right, he wrote a trilogy of encyclicals on the Holy Trinity. First on Jesus, the Redeemer of man. Second on the Father of mercies, God the Father. And the third on the Holy Spirit in the life of the church in the world. The name of the one of the Holy Spirit was the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. So after his encyclical on Jesus, the Redeemer of man, in which he was able to relate the faith to the great crisis and questions of our age as well. He went into ethics, for example, in that encyclical, he says, he says, and the defense of human, he said, Christ has in some way united himself to every human being. That's very, very important that we take that to heart. Every person we meet is in some way a brother and sister of Christ. Christ has united himself in every way with every human being he came to save us. Everyone is a child of God. Now, having said that, the whole question about the meaning of baptism is a different question to this. Christ came to save everyone, and Christ loves and has died for everyone. Now, then he went into questions of ethics, and he has a great statement in there about ethics. He's saying that in order to defend the dignity of the human be being, and this was very much coming out of Eastern Europe at the time, in response to the situation in Eastern Europe. But also you can see it in relation now to our culture more than you would have seen it then. He said there are three, area, three ideas you have to hold fast to. The first is the superiority of the person over things. You take about our culture. You know, we become so equivalent. Great human values like family and children and so on are being sacrificed just to get, you know, the materialism, the consumerism. 
The next thing is of the superiority of the person over things. Secondly, the superiority of ethics over technology. Take the embryo of the therapeutic cloning, for example. Science, scientific knowledge for the sake of knowledge, irrespective of what you, of what you do killing innocent human beings in the process. The third point he mentioned in that encyclical was the superiority of spirit over matter. And of course, that was a direct response at the time to the underlying philosophy of Eastern Europe, Marxism and Communism, where the spirit, the spiritual dimension of man didn't really exist. It was just a kind of a psychologically induced condition brought on by the material conditions of existence. Phew. Crackpot stuff here. Absolutely madness. Right? Obviously, if that's true about the human person, then, well, you know, if we want to make things a bit better for the majority, why not kill 30 million people in the collectivization of farming in Ukraine and, and Russia and so on? But equally so, if how about how does that apply in our Western culture, materialistic culture today? Are not we not basically living according to the same principle, where we've inverted the order of reality, and we live as though um, the superiority of the material over the spiritual? Would you agree? Absolutely. <laughs> now, and also in that encyclical, he referred to the great inequities in the distribution of wealth, the scandal of the terrible impoverishment, and the, the people who are living on the margin, and the starvation, and so on, was a wonderful work. Then, after that, his next encyclical, I'm not getting that, his next encyclical was on mercy. Now, notice up there, we see him praying in front of uh, the image of the Divine Mercy. And of course, the nun to whom our Lord reveals that devotion and commission to establish it in the world was also Polish, St. Faustina. And the whole notion of mercy is very, very closely related to the whole mystery of sin and redemption, sin and forgiveness. I better not go on too long, but I had a very interesting discussion with a year nine geography class today in school. The geography book we have is, um, oh, it's very politically correct. It's, it's basically an indoctrination in um, deep ecology. You know, but you have to use some kind of a textbook. You need some kind of tool for the students. You cannot just go in and prepare it in every class yourself. But even using a textbook like that, within certain limits, has its advantage if you have a good teacher who can educate the students who approach it in a critical way, right? Just lots of good stuff in it. Good exercises, graphs are very good, pictures, images, very well presented, but then you get awful rubbish going through it, like in one place they make out in the year eight book that was the spread of Christianity that contributed significantly to deforestation in Southeast Asia. You know, and, and you can get this stuff right across the curriculum. But anyhow, we were doing... We were doing, yeah, one other thing about the textbook is always nowhere does it state that human beings are the crown of creation. Fundamental starting point for Christian anthropology, the crown of material creation. Nowhere do you find it. So then human beings are often reduced to just another factor in the environmental mix, as it were. So, therefore, you have a reductionism straight away. A form of, a deadly form of materialism. Now, but anyhow, we're talking about community and multicultural society and ethnic different um, diversity and that type of thing. And I gave them some experiences, you know, about telling them about when I was in Ireland, you know, some of the ideas we had and some of the... Well, it wasn't et ethnic, it was the conflict in Ireland, we say, the Irish-English conflict and the implications of that. How my mother came from an Irish-speaking area and she came from a large family, 14 children. They would have been very poor in the west of Ireland, so there was eight sons, I think, in the family, four of them went to work in England. And the, when they were around 14 years of age working on the building, and the place they were working in, in England, in Huddersfield, was... Um, they, 
practically never, they spent their whole life there and got married, married people from back home in the west of Ireland who are native Irish speakers as well. So my uncle practically never learned to speak English after 40 or 50 years in England. They're dead now. And in that town of Huddersfield, I probably have, I don't know, maybe a few hundred distant cousins by now. And, 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 um, but the point about it is what I was talking about, how when people come to a country, a nation, they will, they will instinctively want to cling together and get mutual support from people of their own ethnic, religious um, background and so on. There's a, there's a sense of security in that, and then gradually they'll move out into broader culture and become etc. etc. But in all of these questions came up about racial conflict and ethnic conflict and so on, and the whole thing about reconciliation. And I discussed with them how important it was to be able to reconcile, to be able to forgive that there is no hope of getting beyond, you know, the genocidal conflict in Central Europe or in the Middle East or in Belfast or wherever you want to go. Unless people acquire the ability to be able to reach out from their heart and see in the other a brother and sister, a child of God. Not only is that true when you look at the great conflicts in the world, it is also true in your own home. In my relationships with the student and with the teacher, reconciliation is one of the... The need for reconciliation is one of the deepest felt needs in our humanity as a consequence of original sin. So, I was able to link from that into the sacrament of reconciliation. God meets all our needs. Jesus meets all our needs. The need for the spiritual food, his own body and blood. The need for reconciliation. The definitive reconciliation. The reconciliation with God and flowing on from that, the reconciliation with our brothers and sisters who we have sinned against or who have sinned against us. And because that led us in then, and of course, after the, the horrors of the Second World War, of course, that message of mercy was so important in the world. And and God is merciful, a merciful Father. He takes no account of our sins, of the sins for which we are truly sorry. And that's from one of his writings. And what I'm dealing with here is, I'm dealing with his second and cyclical on the mercy of God. And there's the opening line of the encyclical. It is God who is rich in mercy, whom Jesus Christ has revealed to us as Father. It is his very Son who, in himself, has manifested him and made him known to us. And that is a powerful encyclical about the mercy of God. And in that encyclical, he refers to the revelation to, um, to the St. Faustinian. And St. Faustinian and the whole devotion that, she, that she, she brought to the world influenced significantly that encyclical. And I would say, I know this idea of a world in need of reconciliation is an ongoing part, it's a constituent part of fallen humanity. And the apostles themselves of St. Paul, I think, said, we are ministers of reconciliation. And for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will eternal life. And this is one of Rembrandt's painting. It's beautiful. This depicts the father of the prodigal. And how much St. John Paul II used that powerful parable of the prodigal. And in this encyclical, um, often... You get the, the idea that the God of the Old Testament, yeah, is a very harsh God, and he's, he's not identifiable with the God of the New Testament. Talk to Robert, as he, the first section of this encyclical is on the revelation of mercy already in the Old Testament. And he goes through the various Hebrew names and so on for mercy. And if, if you know a bit about the Old Testament, God is always revealed to the God of mercy. He speaks very harshly to his people at times. And sometimes he punishes them because it's for their own good, but then he always relents and he promises to take them back to himself. He will woo them to himself. They are unfaithful, but he will be faithful. Now, 
Then, of course, what do you think? Then there was another one or two encyclicals after the encyclical on the on the on the mercy of God and the Father, and then he wrote his encyclical on the Holy Spirit. And this is a Nisran. Um, this is a, a, a Nisran icon, and here we have the Holy Spirit as the love between the Father and the Son, a common symbol of the Dove, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Love, the Spirit of Love between the Father and the Son that Jesus came to impart. And he came to impart it so that we would be able, through God's grace, to be transformed inwardly, to be recreated inwardly, so that we will truly be people of reconciliation. And we will be people who are able to love and forgive. We will be people who will strive to model ourselves on Jesus. Now, this is a powerful and cyclical this one. You don't hear much about it. And what I've done here is it's divided into three sections. And the Holy Spirit has often been referred to as, um, you know, the unknown person of the Holy Trinity. And before I go on, what I'm doing here, I'm just pointing out how Pope John Paul II is so faithful to the teaching of the Second Vatican Council. Here is the actual hierarchy of truth at work. The reason why I'm saying that, because again, there's another terrible distortion of the Council of the, of the Second Vatican Council. Oh, the hierarchy of truth, we accept Jesus was God and the Holy Trinity, but we can get rid of purgatory type of thing. No, it didn't mean that at all. Just mean we must try to understand purgatory in terms of God's mercy. And he's reconciling, and he's reconciling power and the call to holiness. The call to holiness for the model, for the definitive model is the holiness of Christ and our lady, but the holiness of Christ to begin with, who is the holiness of God. Now, anyhow, part one, the spirit of the Father and the Son given to the church. The Annunciation. The Holy Spirit is there. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And you will conceive the Son and you will call his name Jesus, call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. The Holy Spirit is there. At all the key events in Jesus' life, the Holy Spirit is there. His baptism, he sets out on his mission. At the Last Supper, he promises he'll send the Holy Spirit. At the foundation, when the church is born at Pentecost, when it's made manifest to the world, it does so under the impulse of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, Go back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait. Wait for what? Without the Holy Spirit you can do nothing. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And then, when you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will come, he'll teach you all the truth, he'll fill you with his gifts, and then you'll be able to go out and convert a world steeped in sin and murder and whatnot. And, so, Jesus' promise and revelation at the Last Supper Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are the, the headings in the encyclical. The salvific self-giving of God in the Holy Spirit. Now, in his theology of the body, one of the things he developed was the mercy of God begins with cre- in that encyclical on the mercy of God, but it also follows through into the theology of the body. He says, the first expression of God's mercy towards us was his decision to create us in the beginning. He didn't need us. God, God is fully self-contained to himself. He doesn't need us for anything. Everything is a sheer gift. And when he created, God in a, when he created the physical universe, in a certain way God poured himself out. In some way that created universe out there reflects in some way the glory of God. It reflects in some way God himself. St. Paul said it. He said to the Romans. Ever since the beginning, the power of his divinity is there to be seen in the things he has made. And it is very, very interesting. Have any of you heard of Anthony Flew? Very distinguished philosopher, an atheistic philosopher, came to a realization towards the end of his life. Yeah, yes, a God does exist. He had arrived at the God of the Greek philosophers. He had, well, certainly not two years before he died, maybe in the latter days. Please God, he did. He hadn't arrived at God as a personal God. 
as a God of the covenant, as the loving Father, but he had arrived at the God of the Creator, and he's come to it through his philosophical understanding and the use of that philosophical understanding for the interpretation for the finding of modern science about the way in which the cosmos is ordered. This fellow actually flew with English, and one of his writings, and Theology and Falsification, was the most widely published philosophical tract in the English language in the second half of the 20th century. Now, so therefore, God's presence is there to be seen in the things he has made. And the church teaches that in the dogma of faith in the First Vatican Council, that man can arrive at a knowledge of the existence of God from reason. Doesn't mean you come to know the Holy Trinity. But you can't, through reason, come to that. That has to be revealed. But the existence of God you can, that's discernible to reason. Now, the sal- so the salvific giving of God, right, then God gave himself when he created us especially. When he made us in his image, we're made in the image of the Holy Trinity. God gives himself again in the incarnation. When he becomes man, he takes on our human nature and he invites us through him. He's going to draw us into his own life. And he gives himself again to us in the Holy Spirit. The Messiah is anointed with the Holy Spirit. The risen Christ says to the apostles, receive the Holy Spirit. We cannot do anything unless we do it in the Holy Spirit. And St. Paul says, we cannot say, we cannot say, Abba, Father, unless we're in power to do so by the Holy Spirit. In other words, we cannot come to know that we are called to eternal participation in the love of the Holy Trinity unless the Holy Spirit opens our minds and our hearts to receive the gift of faith. And that's why, you know, you can argue when the cows come home about, you know, all very good um, arguments for Catholicism. But in the end, to bring people across the line from, we'll say, a very, very committed form of Protestantism, just to take an example, not to mention atheism, to bring someone across the line to say, we say, before the Blessed Sacrament, my Lord and my God, to realize in the teaching of the church, this is the teaching of Christ himself, to bring them across that line, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And after you have finished all the arguments, and trying to convince them, and trying to offend them in the end, the most important thing you can do is pray and fast. Pray and offer sacrifices. Now, the rhythm Christ says, receive the Holy Spirit in the gift, confession. The Holy Spirit and the era of the church. Now, the next section, the next section of the encyclical, the spirit who convinces the world concerning sin. She is an awful rubbish going on around at the moment, you know. So, um, people, Catholics sometimes, unfortunately, who disagree with the teaching of the church, even on the most serious of things like attacks on human life, will say, I've listened to the teaching of the church, I've prayed about it in the Holy Spirit, I'm convinced in the Holy Spirit that it's, that it's all right for me to disobey that teaching. So therefore the Holy Spirit is saying to those whom Jesus, the successors of the apostles, the Pope and the successors of the apostles, that whom Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, that he would lead them into the whole truth. And one of the reasons why he would lead, lead them into the whole truth is because they would consecrate those in the truth who would believe because of their word. That's from St. John's Gospel, there at the Last Supper. So therefore, the word of the Holy Spirit, coming true, the authorized, by God himself, teachers of the church, contradict what the Holy Spirit is saying in the conscience of the individual Catholic. What it means, of course, is that there's something wrong with the understanding of conscience. And it's not something, it's not that there's something wrong with the teaching of the church. And conscience can be an error, and conscience is presented as the ultimate arbiter of the distinction between good and evil. It's not. It is, a, it is an organ that allows it to be able to ask the question what is good and what is false. But then we have to inform that conscience and see what is truth. 
and intrinsic to the Catholic, to the Catholic, uh, the Catholic way of being is that the Church teaches us truly the distinction between good and evil, and that to submit to the teaching of the Church, he who hears you hears me, is to submit to Christ Himself. Now. So, the testimony of the day of Pentecost. And here we have the Council of Jerusalem, Peter. And what did Peter say? What did he say? When they send a letter to the, to the Christians in, who are dispersed, it said, It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So therefore, they send on the instructions about... Um, whatever it was, eating different types of foods and so on, that's saying from this other thing, right? Now, witness concerning the beginning, the Holy Spirit, about the original reality of sin, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said that he convinces of sin. He's not, the Holy Spirit is not convincing us of sin, as you know, the image of something, because he wants us to make us feel bad. No, if we want to know the truth about ourselves, if we want to know our true dignity, we have to know about sin. We have to know that we are sinners. St. John says, if we say we are not sinners, we are liars. So if we have to know about sin, if we have to know, know about sin, we have to know the distinction between good and evil. And the Holy Spirit will teach us that. And the Holy Spirit will transform suffering into salvific love. St. Maximilian called it. Terrible suffering. Anybody here who's ever had to pass through any kind of serious type suffering in their life, be it psychological or mental or emotional or physical or whatever, you will know that whilst when the suffering first afflicts you, it is a shocking scourge in the beginning. But if God gives you the grace that you are able to rely on Him and trust in Him, you know that that suffering will bring you closer to Him. At the bottom level, what it involves is, yes, God didn't create us to experience that type of suffering, but he created us with freedom. And we brought on true sin, the condition has been brought on, that suffering is a necessary part. We cannot get away from it. But God in his wisdom and his plan has made provision for that. He'll bring good out of it, and even good out of suffering. So even in Jesus, not my will but yours being done, in his, in, his, in, his human, um, in his human nature, he shuddered at the thought of the cross and all the suffering that lay ahead of him. But in the end, your will, not my will, be done because he came to save sinners and this was the price and this was the way in which God ordained from it. And out of that, would, in the end, that terrible suffering would be transformed into that ultimate manifestation of the love of God. So, the encyclical deals with that. Blood that purifies the conscience. Then, the next part of the encyclical, this is very interesting. He talks in here about, he talks about the devil. Right, the Holy Spirit strengthens the inner man. Gives it to Gradually, over time, will open up before your mind's eye the mysteries of the faith, convince you about them, and encourage you along the track to ongoing conversion. Now, in that encyclical he talks about the devil being the father of lies and that from the beginning he was a murderer and a liar. And he talks about a kind of conspiracy against the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. He talks about a conspiracy against life. And he says that probably the best example of that denial, number one, the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, and also the dignity of the human person is probably, and this encyclical is about probably around 1983, I'd say. He says probably the, the, the most concrete denial of it is the early interventions, destructive interventions on human life. You know, we cannot imagine really how evil all that business is. Now, of course, Jesus came to bring us into his family life. I'll tell you what, now, I'll go through the rest of here. I'll 
us through God. With Jesus came to bring us into his family life. The family of the Holy Trinity. But in heaven, Jesus, and from the moment of the incarnation, he's not just the son of the eternal father. He's also the son of Mary. And that's beautiful. And because of all that implied, she's truly the mother of God. She participated intimately in the whole plan of redemption. And just before, and just as his father, he came so that we too will become children of the father. We too will be able to say, I'm a father. We too be able to say, our father. He also gave us Mary to be our mother. So she truly is our mother. And she is intimately involved with the whole history of the church. She is intimately involved in the faith journey of each one of us. She's truly a mother. And we must take her. We must take her. She participated intimately with every aspect of Christ's life. She's At the same time, she's the mother of sorrow. As there's Jesus looking at the, the instruments, the crucifixion. And I think one of the most beautiful expressions of Pope John Paul II in, in his whole life of promoting, promoting love for Our Lady and encouraging us to take her into our life as our mother, as the mother of the church, as our model for faithful discipleship. Second Vatican Council holds her up as the mother of the church but also as the perfect disciple. And I think one of the beautiful phrases that Pope John Paul II applied in relation, in regard to her, was well, she's the, the woman of the Eucharist. Beautiful expression. It's in his document. He has it in the document on the Eucharist. And he has it in the one on the rosary. And he makes a beautiful um, statement in, in the one on the rosary. I think it's the one on the rosary. He says, that wasn't an encyclical, that was a paper letter, I think. He says, yes, Mary, our mother, the mother of God, Conceived Jesus in a unique and unrepeatable way in her womb. But in a certain sense, we receive and conceive Jesus as well in the Eucharist. Now, we're dealing here with the language, a language of limitations. Mary's role is unique, but nevertheless, what Mary is called with all her privileges, culminating in her assumption into heaven and being crowned queen of heaven and earth is what awaits us to we are called to be crowned with the glory of the dignity of the children of God now I um, you know I have a lot of slides here I'll just go through some of these I won't comment on them this is a slide of which if I was given, say, several hours on this type of stuff, I'd talk about how Pope John Paul II built up our prayer life. He modeled prayer for us. Another way of looking at our life as Catholics is we were all people, all human beings. We were created to pray. Now, you know and I know prayers aren't easy. Oh, at times we love prayer. It's lovely in front of the business for a half an hour and a half, but sometimes we find it very, very hard. It's easy to do the occasional prayer when, the, when you feel right, like go in there and pray in front of the blessed sacrament for a half an hour or whatever. The hard part of prayer is to commit yourself to a strict routine of prayer. To say, right, number one, when I get up in the morning, I want to make sure I get up in a time where I can give 10, 15 minutes, whatever, to prayer. Then to say, I will set aside that half hour during the day and I'll be with our Lord and confess with our Lord. Because all this, there's the temptation to put other things before it. But anyhow, we were created, we were created to pray. And we can pray in any environment. Any environment, any occasion. And of course, ultimately, we can offer up all our work as a prayer. Jesus' whole life was a prayer to the Father. It was an expression of his love and his and uh, of his love for the Father. Right. His words and deeds. 
Jesus reveals what it was to be a son of God through his teaching, through his words, and through his deeds. Same as us. Our life as Christians has to be expressed through our words and through our deeds. The deeds must be the deeds of the children of God. And there must be the deeds that built up his kingdom, built up his plan for his creation on his terms. So therefore, that opens up the whole question of morality. Morality is inseparable from the Christian life. If we're going to truly respond to the love, to the invitation of the Father, to the invitation of Jesus, we will also try to live as Jesus lived. Intrinsic to that is love for the commandments. And of course, in his instinctical very tact of splendor, which deals with moral questions, he says, the difference is Jesus lifts the commandments to a new level. The commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, becomes blessed are the pure in heart, is to see God. In other words, you become so, you embrace God's plan for the human body and so on, for marriage and all related matter. You have heard that it was said, thou shalt not um, commit murder, but I say to you, etc., etc. So we need to the heart of Christ, which forgave even his enemies. Now, so the whole thing about morality. Here's an encyclical from Redemptor Hominus. That's the picture of a lady in the Southern Cross. Man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless. His love is not revealed to him. If he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it, made it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. Of course, he modeled all this himself. He went around the world talking about Jesus, Jesus being our friend, our saviour, promoting the sacraments, his love for children. When he was shot down, he forgave and extended the hand of reconciliation and love to his would-be assassin. He had no illusions, so that refers to his encyclical amorality. When God is put aside, we should read this. Should read it, I think, particularly in light of the upcoming election in Australia. John Paul II stated that the intellectual foundation of totalitarianism is to be found in the denial of truth in the objective sense. He added that if there is no transcendent truth in obedience to which man achieves his full identity, then there is no sure principle for guaranteeing just relations between people. So, if there is no God, the creature disappears. And godlessness was at the heart of all the great and destructive ideologies of the 20th century. Now, of course, he sold the gospel of life. I won't go into the detail. Especially the gospel of life is extended to the protection of the weakest of our brothers and sisters. By living as if God does not exist, Man not only loses sight of the mystery of God, but also of the mystery of the world and the mystery of his own being. You just look at our society. People say they believe in God, but at the same time they've lost the mystery of our own being. They'll say abortion is all right. They'll say I'm not against gay adoption in principle. They'll say there's such a, uh, an absurdity as gay marriage. Rights of workers will be trampled on. The poor will be exploited. Minors will be put to their death. Just to keep the wheels of economic progress churning over. I'm talking about China there, for example. My first um, comments relate to the politicians in this city. Hmm. Right? Now, okay. And then it goes the gospel of life. The defense of marriage and the family. Including in that, of course, the evil of contraception, the theology of the body, contributing in order to, to as a defense of humanity, all the effort he put into that, the body expresses the person, the dignity, the dignity, Mother Teresa could, could say, when I pick up the untouchable from the street, I see it on the face of Jesus. She wasn't talking kind of mystical theology there. That's the reality. I was hungry and you fed me. 
God, Jesus, has united himself to every person, as Pope John Paul II said in his opening encyclical. The dignity of the body goes beyond marriage. And marital love and sexuality extends right out to the whole of reality, frankly, to the whole of physical reality. This woman here, who maybe by the high and mighty of this world wouldn't count for anything, she is an affliction of Christ. She is a reflection of the goodness and love of God. She reminds me of Christ crucified. Pope John Paul II says in his encyclical on the Eucharist, if you cannot find within you a concern for the plight of others, then your participation in the Eucharist is defective. And he quotes St. John Chrysostom. That effect. Anyhow, I won't go on anymore. We, we could go on with all the slideshow, but um, anyhow, you can go on and on. I haven't even touched the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the revision of the Code of Canon Law. You go on and on, all these social encyclicals. You know, as I said, thanks be to God that God raises up saints and prophets, and thanks be to God for the faith we have received. Thank you. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Eamon Keane. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.